Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow, I will give it to you, when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways, for the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks the proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk on the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, and they do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perseverity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Yet your, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading, David and Kelly, and thank you for um, that music, uh, Caleb and, and Kim, that was great this morning. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly this morning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is what the psalm proclaimed for us again this morning. 
Chris made this uh, banner that's behind me that says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and I, I meant to, the week that Chris was working on it, she said, I'm looking forward to your sermon because I've been thinking about it a lot. And there's this way in which working with your hands, making a banner that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, would probably bring you into pondering that more than just reading it once or twice, but to work with your hands and do that. And so what I did in our, our first sermon was try to jump into that, that what is the fear of the Lord? And how it is that, that I think it was Eugene Peterson, how when we begin the spiritual life, it's, it's best to displace ourselves. That Peterson thought, you know, we shouldn't think we do too much in the spiritual life. And so he liked that word, and he writes it out sort of hyphenated as one word. Um, I believe I have it in here. Um, as the fear of the Lord, as sort of just one concept. You don't, you said, you know, he said if you looked up um, butterfly and you wanted to look up butter and fly to figure out what a butterfly was, you would be le- as led as far astray as if you looked up fear and then Lord. Is that, that these are concepts that are held together for him. And so what he wanted to do is drive home the point that the spiritual life is something that even if we are, are Uh, we think of our activity within it, we think of it in a way in which we show reverence and awe and care and fear for the one who guides us in it, not develop it all by ourselves. And that's one of the messages I've been um, um, over maybe hammering in this first part of Proverbs is that we live in a world where where knowledge and thought and hope is um, is all either inside of ourselves Live your truth is something people would say, and you can imagine the uh, author of Proverbs saying, the sinners say, live your truth. <laughs> um, uh, that it's, it's this thing that is external to us. And one of the things that I maybe missed is that it's external to us in the way that it's not technology. Like, so much of our hope in the modern world is that everything will be solved sort of through through techne, the processes of technology, and that, and that we will continue to develop these things, and things will um, come out better. And, and it's not only, I mean, if you think about um, one of the heightened battles of sin today um, with our, our technology and uh, whether you want to pick on porno- pornography or technology, we have technological solutions to those problems, you know, I've, I've talked about Covenant Eyes before, which helps with the pornography one, um, but even there's an app called Freedom, um, which if you are a novelist, uh, Jonathan Franzen, one of my favorite novelists, used it, and he titled a book Freedom, that shuts off everything on your computer so you can't get on the internet unless you restart your computer. Now today, jokes on them, computers restart very fast. Um, when Jonathan Franzen wrote that book, that was a process to, to restart your computer, and so it kept him off the internet. He also uh, used a non-technological solution. It was pre-Wi-Fi. He put uh, um, hot glue in the ethernet port on his laptop, too, to keep him from getting online, to commit himself to the kind of work. The, the, this is all a lot of uh, absent information. Point being is that even, our, even our, our lives that we would like to live, free from addictions to technology, come with technological solutions to them. And so we keep spinning into sort of this technological way. We, we keep spinning in this way. And so the idea that, that, that what Proverbs is calling us to is almost organic to the world. It's not something that we, um, and, and when wisdom, wisdom 
Woman Wisdom spoke last week, she called out in the marketplace. Her message was repent because nobody was listening to wisdom, but it's almost like wisdom goes to the center of marketplaces and is not heard, but it's not hidden in the way that, that we might want to think it is. Well, it'd be nice to follow the paths of wisdom, but they're so hidden and hard. And so one of the things that I... Um, I didn't answer, because I focused on the first half of that saying, is what is wisdom? Um, and that is a huge <laughs> error. Um, uh, it's like, uh, it's not good. Um, uh, I, I probably did touch on it, but, but well, somebody defined wisdom this week as I was reading as the art of skilled living. We used to talk when we went through Genesis about how we've lost the art of creatureliness. And there's two things when you look at it that way. It's this sort of way of being it is. First, when we lose the art of creatureliness, we begin to think we're the masters of our own domain, that we are the creators of this world, that we don't relate to something. One of the things that um, Roosevelt School is sort of going through is, is they bring her a lot to nature. And I was like, I bet the person who founded this method didn't use nature as much as a word as creation. Problem, of course, being is creation implies the next question, creator. Who is the one who makes this? And this is where Christians, our language often betrays us of, as we've gone down the path of, of sort of the secular world. I love the natural beauty of nature is something we might say, but what we might be more uh, theologically robustly saying for our world is that we love God's creation, that we love this way. And so when we reclaim the art of being a creature being, we reclaim the art of knowing that there's something beyond us. Now, when wisdom becomes the art of skilled living or skilled mastery, it says to us that it's, um, first off, that it's, it's, it's almost like an art, and second off, that it's a skill we learn in the world. It's not just a knowledge depository dump. Um, it's not something you can look up on Wikipedia, although you can look, this is, joke's on me, you can look up the word wisdom on Wikipedia, so um, not, not the best example, but like you can't find wisdom not living it in the world. And one of the things that's going to become clear, especially as we get towards Proverbs 8, is that this is sort of um, ingrained in the way that the world is structured, that God has ordered it so that wisdom is, is weaved throughout it. One of the, the scriptures we heard read this morning was um, uh, about offering, honoring the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. That there's this almost truth in creation is that God's even given us this way in which we can plant a seed and reap a harvest. And that's wisdom in some ways, is that if you want something, you can plant it and grow it. Now, again, we live in a world where it's like, no, you go to city market. Um, and then you complain that prices have gone up because of the pandemic, and you wonder why did Bucatini go up in price during the pandemic, and you look that up, and it loses four hours of your life. I'm talking about Matt, I'm telling that you a story about a friend. This isn't about me at all. Um, uh, and so we, we have this way in which wisdom is this mystery that is sort of birthed in and built into creation. Now, this, uh, this image... Um, it screams like metal to me. Um, uh, rock on, man. Um, this is a blacksmith in uh, Door County. Uh, Door County, Wisconsin, if you didn't grow up there. Um, and he makes Nordic swords for a living. 
Um, and I learned about him in a book called Deep Work, which is about sort of how in the knowledge economy, being able to focus on something for longer than, well, that our, our current economy is set up even in knowledge fears on like, do you, you have to be on Slack, you have to be on email, and you have to check your company's Twitter and all this, and so you can't actually focus and get work done. And so he's sort of arguing for a return to deep work, of deep focus. And he uses this guy, uh, Rick Fuhrer, as an example. He specializes in making these swords. And he says, I do all my work by hand and use the tools that multiply my force without limiting my creativity or interaction with the material. He explains in his artist statement, what takes 100 blows by hand can be accomplished in one large swagging machine. This is the antithesis of my goal. And to that end, all my work shows evidence of two hands that made it. He builds these big Viking swords there, um, and, and Cal Newport, the author of Deep Work, talks about the scenes in which he pulls them out red hot like this, um, and after a moment of relief where the blade doesn't crack, a complete common occurrence at this stuff, uh, Fuhrer pulls it from the oil. The residual heat of the metal lights the fire, engulfing the sword's full length in yellow flame. Fuhrer holds the burning sword up above his head with a single powerful arm and stares at a moment before blowing out the fire. During this brief pause, the flames illuminate his faith, and his admiration is palpable. To do it right is to make the most complicated thing I know how to make. And it's the challenge that drives me. I don't need a sword, but I have to make them. That, that when we talk about wisdom, there's this way in which it's a craft in the world that this is. It's a craft in which we sort of hammer away at these things and sort of work at forming and building these things ourselves. That, that wisdom in the, in the Hebrew has this way in which it's related to craft. It's so much of what we do is not related to craft in the same disciplined way that Rick Fuhrer is doing it. Matthew Crawford, another one who looks at people like this, he has two great books, Shop Classes, Soul Maintenance, and The World Beyond Your Head. But in The World Beyond Your Head, it's, there's a long essay in the last half that's about the um, pipe makers workshop. They make um, pipes for organs. Um, and one of the things is, is that to make a pipe for an organ is to submit yourself to a long-standing craft and tradition is to learn how it's been done over and over and over again and so as we've we've been walking through wisdom in these lectures we'll get to the, the way it's been structured so far in just a moment it's the submitting to what's come before you and hearing and so he talks about the ways in which they're crafting the organs um, to a heightened level to, due to the measurement devices and the things that we have available to us today. But they had to learn to get there. If you want to talk about wisdom in this way, it's, it's like um, if you're familiar with music to some sense, it's learning the scales so that you can play the instrument, so that you can improvise if it's jazz music. And wisdom is this way in which we get in touch, which is, has been um, wedded into creation. It, it goes deep. And this is why um, I've been, been harping on this point of, of that it's better to read, I think, Scripture often for our sake as creates, redeems, consummates in looking at the ways in which God does those things rather than as a single book with a message all the way through because that will pull you off path. It begins to be hard to read Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and 
I don't, I don't think it really matters what your philosophy of scripture is. Song of Songs is hard to read anyways. But um, needless to say, that's sort of the path we're on as we go through wisdom literature. And I argued that that takes us into the creates process of it. And this is what's hard about it is that if we think about the Old Testament, we have the Torah, the first five books that we went through the last five summers, and those sort of set up the structure of what is Israel. Right at the edge of the promised land, they're about to go in, um, and they've walked from Abraham's calling in Genesis 12 all the way to this moment. And it's will they take hold of the promises? Will they choose life or will they choose death? The next history books are about them basically choosing death. There are moments of life throughout that, um, but there are moments it's basically a decline. And we get prophets who sort of speak to how they can repair themselves to the Lord, that how they can again find these paths, that how again they can go on this way. Um, and then that makes up most of what we call the Old Testament. But there are books that stand out of that, the Psalms being one of them. They don't take on any of the redemption history. They talk about something else. And they give us language and how we language towards God. They're, they're one of the things that we begin our service with every week. When I preach through them, I often encourage you to find a psalm to read each day of the week um, that I think the psalms can be the bedrock of our prayer life together. Uh, this still leaves the wisdom literature on the side. Now, many things today just get chalked up to Billy Graham. Allegedly, he used to write, read two psalms every day to govern his relations with man and two proverbs every day to govern his relations with God. And I think it must have been two chapters from Proverbs because if you're in 10 through 11, the Proverbs are like, Billy, that's like two, two seconds. It's, you don't get credit for that. But um, it's me judging Billy Graham. Good luck there. Um, uh, needless to say that, that these ones don't fit into that as well. And particularly Proverbs, Job, in Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Where do you place them in the matrix if you're only reading from the beginning to end as if it's one story? But if we look at it as this way, the story in which God is telling the way in which he relates to us and creating us and sustaining us and the way that he redeems us from sin and darkness and, um, and death and the way in which he consummates us into a new world, all of scripture can become alive in different ways and it doesn't have to be just forced into a linear way. It also makes the Old Testament much more readable. If you begin to say, okay, chapter one is, is creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, which is a common way of structuring it, you will say, why would you spend time reading about Israel? Why not read about Jesus and church? Whereas this way of talking about it actually drives you in to learning about all the other ways in which God is relating to us continually throughout the book. Um, so those are the two forwards. I think we covered a little bit of what wisdom is and how it's a craft, and it's a way to navigate the maze of life. Um, it's the tools for that. Um, all of life's activities uh, fit into its harmony and its created order in some ways. Um, so this is the structure of where we've been. This was a slide that was not meant to be shared, but it was helpful for me. Um, uh, structure one through seven was the opening in the first sermon. And, and so if you see the red on the top, that's lecture. Um, and each of these lectures begin with my son, my son, my son. And so lecture one um, was to reject the gang's invitation. Lecture, or then we had wisdom's first speech, which was not one of the lectures to the son, uh, from the father to the son. Then we had the safeguard against wisdom in 2, 1 through 22. Um, uh, I am's promises, which started today, is lecture three. Um, I am's promises uh, and the son's obligations, three, one through 12. Three, uh, 
13 through 35 is the Valium of Wisdom lecture, lecture 4. 4, 1 through 9, get the Family Heritage, lecture 5. 10 through 19, staying off, uh, need another F there. Staying of the wrong way is not what he wants. Staying off the wrong way, lecture 6, 10 through 19. And don't swerve from the right way, uh, verses 4, chapter 4, verses 10, 20 through 27, um, lecture 7. And so we've been walking through these lectures from this father to the son. And so each one of them is sort of set up differently. It brings us to the scripture readings have been a little bit longer. Um, and one of the challenges is is figuring out like you stick with one lecture or you do multiple lectures. And so today's sermon is organized around the lectures um, three through seven, and I'll make highlights on each of them, but the last one we'll do is actually lecture four, because that's the one I have uh, the most interesting stuff to say about, I guess. Um, has anybody seen the Lexus commercial with uh, Emmanuel Acho? If you're watching any sports lately, you probably would have seen it. Emmanuel Acho, he uh, was a not great NFL player for a little bit, and then he, yeah, NBA playoffs, I'm sure has it. This is this is him. Um, and he seems he he hosts a uh, unconver unconversa uncomfortable conversations with a black man on YouTube, which is actually interesting to watch. But what I wanted to point out about that commercial is that we trade in wisdom in a terrible way today. Real empathy knows no age or color, no gender. By Alexis, engineer to the higher standard, the human standard. Um, this commercial, which is about a minute and a half long, if you watch it in its full form, is him walking around working out, what is empathy? And that might be interesting of itself, but what we have is the cheapening of wisdom today. And we could debate, I think, empathy. There's enough research that empathy isn't great. Um, it, it's not helpful for helping other people, and it's more about yourself than actually... Um, uh, taking on other people's concerns in a way that's more about you than it is actually taking on their concerns. Those are two negatives towards empathy. But the point being is that like we have this way in which even the wisdom of the world comes packaged into a by Alexis. And you see this with cell phone commercials. You see this, I mean, I picked on this one because it's one of the few ads I get when I stream baseball games, and so it's at the top of my mind. But insurance commercials are... Not uh, Liberty, which is the worst, um, with the emu, but, um, or Geico with all theirs. It gets worse. Um, the point is, there are, there are commercials that are promising us this beauty, this, and, and so wisdom becomes sort of this commercial thing that drives us out. And I wanted to keep that in mind as sort of we go through the lectures today. This is the first lecture versus, um, or lecture three. Uh, the verses are not going to be up there, but I believe they're one through... Uh, 9, 13. Um, this first lecture between the father and the son tells him not to forget his commands or teachings and to hang love and faithfulness around his neck. Love and faithfulness are the, are the two sort of peak words in the Hebrew Bible. And that sort of uh, has said, as we've talked about before, is the faithfulness one, this loving kindness, is what he is supposed to adorn himself with. And then you will and then you will find win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And then the father instructs him, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all the ways, all your ways, submit to him and make, and he will make your path straight. 
But what he says next, which I think is important, is do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. One of the things that Proverbs is continually pointing out to us is don't think of yourself as wise in your own stature. Do not look at your own decisions as the way to go. Look someplace else. Do not set your eyes on your own wisdom, but on something else out of yourself. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And it's, it's hard to say, like, how do we instruct our eyes away from thinking we're wise in and of ourselves? I made a joke about him, live your own truth before. This is an exact example of thinking you're wise in your own eyes. Like we, we have to sort of begin to resist and find ourselves pulled back. One of my favorite scriptures is, is from Leviticus. Okay. Good times. Uh, um, uh, be holy for, uh, for as your God is holy. This, this notion that like you need a stronger pull outside of yourself than what's in yourself. Or in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that like we collapse all of, all of what we're going to be inside ourselves. And what scripture tells us is that we need something stronger outside of ourselves to make ourselves stand up straight in the world. And it ends uh, this lecture, so it's 1 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. This is that passage in the book of Hebrew. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It It is for discipline that you have to endure God. To, to endure. God is treating you as sons for what... What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all you have participated in, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. And what C.S. Lewis and Athanasius, I think, work together on this quote, one of my favorite Athanasius uh, early, early church father stories is about how when a painting is damaged, the painter doesn't disregard it, but what he does is he, is he has the subject sit again and repaints the painting. And Athanasius says this is what God does in Jesus Christ, is that humanity is marred in the fall, and he invites Jesus to sit in our place and repaints the painting to restore humanity to what it was. Lewis takes that point around discipline to say, that to, to despise discipline is to despise God's love for us. So as we are being restored to Jesus as he sat in the place that Adam had marred, and the painter paints it again, it, it might be helpful to, to flip t- to a sculpture here, is that there are parts of us that will be chiseled away to move into that image. There are parts of us that will fall away as we go to that spot. And for us, it's easy to to deny the discipline of the Lord to say that hurts, or it's too hard, or is there a technological solution to this problem so that I don't have to go through it myself? But what Lewis is pointing out is that that loses our place as sons and daughters of God when we do that. We receive the discipline, so that God can be remaking us into the image of his son and what he intended for humanity all along. There was a, a, a guy who we knew in college who was, I wouldn't say very religious, but very charismatic, and I would often think, why is he so weird? 
Um, and I think one of my friends said to me, you know, sometimes with God, we don't get more weird, we get more Christ-like, um, is, is that perhaps he seems so out of place in the world. And there was um, a truth to this guy. It just felt weird. Um, but that, that he became more and more acceptable and pleasing to God. And in that way, for me, it was maybe hard to relate to him. It made me think about that in a way in which, you know, you don't necessarily always become more popular. You, you might become less popular as you begin to walk these paths. Lecture um, four is the last one, so we'll, we'll jump, that we're going to do. Lecture five, so the first one was actually lecture three. I forgot we started midway through. Lecture um, three um, jumps us forward a little bit to, uh, I believe... Chapter 4, yes, this is where the father draws him into the grandfather's instruction. Listen, my sons, to a father's father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I, too, was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said... This is what the grandfather has taught to the son. We just did a series on things we hold in common at Defiance Church, and one of them is tradition. And this is a great influence of tradition. It's the father saying, I learned this from my father, and here's what he said. It's this passing on and handing down. G.K. Chesterton defines tradition in a great way. He says, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to sit, submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I love that way he says that. And so much of what we're seeing in the Father's lectures and Proverbs is this tradition of the democracy of the dead, submitting to what has come before us. And that what we're seeing here um, is this... Uh, in short, what the grandfather is holding out, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though, uh, you, though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will give you honor. She will give you a garland to grace your head and a present with a glorious crown. Um, the, fa- the grandfather is pointing out the way in which we pursue something beyond us. It's, it's in a different order of things. It's, uh, the phrase for this is sort of teleological. It's not just cause and effect, but that we are drawn someplace further that is truer and beyond. And th- what I want to say shortly about this is, is the tension between, uh, one of the ways I like to talk about this is the tension between quandary ethics, problem-based ec- ethics, and virtue ethics. So problem-based ethics um, it would begin like this if you took a f- intro to philosophy class your freshman year of college. Um, if they were doing some version of quandary ethics, it would be like, okay, what are lives worth? Well, lives are worth this, that, and the other. Okay, well, here's a thought experiment. Um, you're in a tube, and it's filling up with water, and the fat guy tries to get out first, and he clogs the tube. So the other five of you are going to die, and he's going to live, or there's some dynamite in the tube, and this shows you how insane quandary or problem ethics is. There's also dynamite in the tube, so you could blow up the fat guy and save five people's lives, but the rest, and so this is how ethics is done. Well, you could imagine this as, as I think for many people here as this church tries to walk a path that says Christians are called to live nonviolently in the world, it comes up in a different way. It's like, oh, so you think we're called to be peaceable in the world. Well, what if someone's going to shoot your grandma and you have a gun and you're a good enough shot to shoot them and not your grandma? 
all massive assumptions for somebody who said that they're trying to live peaceably in the world because I would be a bad shot and probably kill grandma and the guy. Um, but the assumptions built into problem uh, ethics um, is, is, is it's a bad game to get to play. And it's particularly not a Christian game, I want to say that. Christians don't do ethics around, hey, come up with the most asinine situations and let's see how I can live them. It's, in a word of Proverbs, it is unwise. But to gain wisdom is to say, what am I aiming at? What path am I trying to follow? And to answer the quandaries and problems that come along the road of life, it will be answered by the way in which I am directed and walking, by where I am going. Instead of saying, like, let's invent situations here, let's talk about where we want to end up. And admit, along the way of life, we'll be pulled into folly, we'll be presented with things we didn't think of, which, like, the, the tube one, it's like, or shouldn't have thought of. Um, and, and that's the way in which ethics in this way, in the seeking of wisdom, is looking at something beyond us. Um, lecture six, um, stay off the wrong path. Uh, we've talked about the path a lot with the didacte. Here's Jesus, narrow, uh, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it, by underneath, for the gate that is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is staying off the wrong path, staying on the correct path. In this passage, I believe... Um, Sorry, I want to get to the, to the last one because I, I misjudged my time today. Um, is, is he's talking about the people who do evil and the ways in which they go along the wrong path. And what he, he sort of points out is that these are people who can't sleep and they reside in darkness, the same darkness that is the curse in Egypt in the Hebrew. Um, they reside in this dark place. And earlier in, in, in the passage, in, in chapter 3, this is chapter 4, it talked about how those who have wisdom can, can sleep. Their sleep will be good. Many of you know that I talk a lot here about being a non-anxious presence in the world. If you've done something wrong, and you know you're about to get caught, or you think you might get caught, you do not sleep well. You normally toss and turn. Being drawn into wisdom, being drawn into Christ, is becoming this way in which we can become non-anxious in the world because there aren't things we're worried about, shoes that will drop, truth that will come out, that we will walk the path in which we are meant to walk. And the way that, that I, in my only acronym moment ever, a non-anxious presence as an acronym is NAP, that Christians can be those who can take a nap because they know not all the world resides on them being hyperactive, hyper-aware, hyper-living in shame and guilt, hyper-trying to steal. This is part of what comes up in this wrong path and way, but trusting in the path that God has placed them on. I think sleep is an important thing, and sleep is also, as we're finding, an important thing in the world. I don't know if any of you saw the research on the pandemic for high schoolers. It actually came out that it wasn't all bad for them because they actually got the appropriate amount of sleep. Um, we walk around as zombies. Uh, driving sleep-deprived is more dangerous than driving a certain level of drunk. Um, 
And that'll make you think about your morning commute differently. Luckily, we live in a place without much of one. Um, do not swerve from the right way, lecture seven. This one contains seven body parts that you're going to walk on on this path. Ears, eyes, heart, flesh, mouth, lips, and feet are all referenced in this way in which you're going to set yourself on the path. Paul wanted my bulletin, so I have to get it. There's a, um, this will come into the next point, actually, more than this one. Um, but but heart is, is used 46 times in the book of Proverbs. That's where I just want to center ourselves for the moment. Um, St. Augustine was the one who saw that like our affections govern who we are more than what we think our thoughts are. And what our heart draws us to is what our, we love, what our affections are. And the way that this is played out in the wor modern world through the work of Jamie Smith, we read one of his books, is he tried to talk about um, the idea that you think you love what your highest sort of ideal is. So if you're a Christian, I love Jesus Christ, I love God, I love this. And yet, like, all the evidence points to the contrary and what you do and how you live your lives. The first thing you do after church is you get home, you put on the NFL, you crack a beer, you live your workday, uh, Monday, 9 to 5, trying to earn as much money as possible. Um, you stay up late at night binging Netflix. A Saturday, you drive your kids around all day. If you're doing that Saturday, you're also doing it on Sunday, but let's pretend for this scenario you're not. Um, and then you get do it all over again. And so what he said is, you know, your affections are going to point out more of what your highest good are than what you're cognitively going to say. Heart in Hebrew is a hard translation to do because it's actually the heart in Hebrew does so much more. It's psychological, it's emotional. Words can come out of the heart. Um, the heart is such more a base of emotions. Uh, Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, talks about how baptism is a conversion of the imagination. Um, and, and imagination might be a better word for heart in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a conversion of the ways in which we perceive and think. Um, one of the things that Jamie Smith talks about in relationship to our hearts and St. Augustine in Confessions um, in a scenario that might keep you up at night, is that there's a, a, a postmodern novel in which they invent a room, and you go into the room, and it will give you what you desire the most. And people sign up to go into the room, and the novel sort of follows them for a little bit. But what happens is they begin to wonder, is what they thought would show up in the room what they desire the most? Now that, I think, is, is, is an interesting thing to think about. Like if you were to walk into a room that would give you what you most desire. I can say, you know, love the Lord with God, all of your heart, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I can say, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. I can say all these things, um, but, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment to see what my affections would reveal and I don't think that's meant to induce anxiety in us, but to say, what is our heart set on? What rhythms, patterns, routines, um, structures are we using to build into our lives to draw us into what we desire the most? The fictional week I talked of, which I think many people live in the modern world, is just bent not to draw you to other things to desire. You're going to want the wisdom that comes with Alexis more than you are likely to want the wisdom of God. So the last one, which I think is, is perhaps the most beautiful of today's lessons, which is going backwards to lecture four, the value of wisdom. Um, 
the key verse here is she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her those who hold her fast being wisdom will be blessed this is a rich rich passage just in its brevity is that she is the tree of life this draws us back to creation again i've never noticed this um, but one of the things that eve desires when she looks at the tree that it's good to eat in this is that it is rich for gaining wisdom when we eat of the tree of that tree we see that it is rich for gaining wisdom. And what is the wisdom that we gain? That we are naked and without clothes, and that they felt ashamed. The wisdom that God calls us into is seen, and in, in the New Testament, we actually sort of live between trees. We live be, between the trees of, of the Garden of Eden and the tree that resides in the city in the, in the, in the New Jerusalem. But what the, son, the Father is saying to the Son here is that this wisdom is a tree of life. And that those, and take hold of her, is um, more romantic than the NIV makes it sound. Take hold of her, be intimate with this one is the way to being blessed. Learning to live in the wisdom of the God is again knowing our limits. God only gave them two prohibitions in the garden. Everything else was fair game. It is again for us to listen to God, to take hold of the tree, and to find that we are blessed there in wisdom. This is the... Um, quote on the back of the bulletin, which is a traditional Jewish prayer when they would put the um, scrolls away. It is tree of life to those who hold fast to it, and its precepts are right. Its paths are the paths of pleasantness, and its paths are peace. Return us to thee, Lord, and we shall return. Renew our days as of old. Let us pray. God, let us set our hearts on you. Seat of our emotions. The place in which life comes from. Where we are awaiting a new circumcision of the heart. And in this setting of our hearts on you, may we find ourselves clinging to the tree to the tree of life. And in that way, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, clinging to the tree there, to the one who went before us, who lived wisdom, walked that path, and guides us through his spirit to the fullness of life. Be with us now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.